Hello, 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 New Haven and everywhere because we're on Zoom. Uh, this is Arts Respond on WNHHLP 103.5 FM New Haven. I'm your host, Lucy Gelman, and today I'm very excited to be here with photographer and filmmaker Lydia Douglas. We will be talking about many things today. Lydia, if I read your whole bio, I think that would take the entire time we have together, but we will share that as we're sharing the episode because um, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. You, you have done a lot. Um, Thank you. And, uh, and we are going to talk about your film, Nappy, which turns 25 this year, which is very, very exciting, um, but also about your career as a filmmaker and a photographer. Um, you may have seen some of Lydia's work at Seven Lenses, an exhibition that was recently at Southern Connecticut State University. And I was lucky enough to meet her earlier this year at an event on black hair care and wearing and being proud of your crown at Concorp, uh, at the lab at Concorp in Hampton. So Lydia, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on Arts Respond. And I am sorry that we are not face-to-face -face having a lovely cup of tea right now. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm thrilled that you came on. So. First of all, I want to ask you, before we get into talking about your film and also how it has aged and, and how you feel, you know, two and a half decades after first having the experience of making it, I want to hop in the Wayback Machine a little bit and talk about how you came to photography and, and then to filmmaking as well. Because I think um, you have told this story that I've been lucky enough to hear about how um, Maybe you found it. Maybe it found you. Maybe it was some combination of the two. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, how did I find photography? Well, I was always interested in photography. I was always the one taking pictures at family events. <clears throat> and my late father was an artist, just many, 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 many talents, photography being photography and film being one of them. So I was always around art. And um, initially, when I was in, in high school, before I went to college, I used to make all my own clothes. I thought I wanted to be a fashion designer. So I went to the University of New Haven, took all the classes, and um, and then I discovered I hated drawing. <laughs> it's really pretty critical if you want to be a fashion designer. And um, I didn't also like a lot of the studio art. So there was one class that I was supposed to take that was filled, and I wasn't able to register for it. So friend of mine, my very, one of my very best friends, the late Alan Lewis, um, took photography and he had a camera. And I said, hmm, that looks interesting. So I signed up for it. And I thought in a week or so, then the other class would have openings and I'd register for the painting class that I was supposed to take. And I picked up the camera and I never put it down. And that was many, many, many years ago when we used to go into the dark room. And that yeah. was just... I also want to say, well, I we could have a whole conversation about film versus digital, but there is also a, a kind of alchemy to film photography. And was that something that really called to you? Because you have to be patient. You It doesn't matter if you like whisper to the photos, they're not going to develop any faster. That's right. That's right. No, digital photography. I, I just, In fact, I just bought my first digital camera about five years ago. It was not something that I really, really wanted to do. Um, and that's so funny. In fact, I can't even remember why I bought the digital camera. But I'm happy I did that. My best work 
is still in film photography. Um, now, even though I haven't shot film in a while, um, yeah, when did I shoot? The last time I shot film, I think was about seven, six years ago, six years ago, just after I came here. And I was still going into the dark room, printing and developing. And I, I will say one of the things that really moves me about your photography, which I've been lucky enough to see some of, is that there is a sense that you really create a rapport with your subjects yeah. and that there is um, trust that has been established before the the camera um, sort of takes the photo or, or the lens clicks. And I'm wondering if, if you can talk about that because I think for decades, but it's still very much the case now, especially with the advent uh, and sort of growth of social media, there's been a lot of discourse and some public argument about what the role of the photographer is. And some photographers will say, I, I can just parachute into something and, you know, snap some photos and come out and maybe there'll be incredible photos. And my sense is you never do that. Okay. So let's see. I, I think what you're, there's a lot that you said. So I'm going to address how I approach my subject. Is that? That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Okay, yeah. I'm okay. sorry. This is, I talk too much. <laughs> no, 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 you don't. You don't. You're, you're a journalist. That's what you, that's what you do. Um, how I approach my subject is that it's okay. What I'm, what I'm doing is capturing us. Most of my subjects are black people. Um, black people. I haven't yet been to the continent, but it's black people in the diaspora. So the Caribbean, um, in the U.S., I've been around, and I see beauty in us that I don't know that a lot of people see. And what I want to do is convey what I see and feel when I'm looking at a black person, whether they're whether I'm um, doing a, a formal portrait or if I'm capturing something. So like one picture that comes to mind is a picture of my, my late brother and his daughter. And he's, she's laying on his chest. She's about maybe five months old. She's got his, her head on his chest. And I just captured a moment. And when I, when I, when I want, when people look at that, I want them to see the softness in, softness in my brother. I want him to see the connection between the two of them. I want them to see how the baby trusts him and how comfortable she is with him. And so because there's so many pictures in the media, which is unfortunately how a lot of people see black people, if you don't have interpersonal relationships with us, I, they, don't, they don't always capture us as we really are. Those tender moments aren't there. And a lot of it is just fake. And, and there's just like how they see us. They meaning, it's usually white people that are photographing black people, you know, what you see in the media. Um, and so, and so, yeah, so I want to, <clears throat> I want to bring the personal out in the open. Yeah. So, this actually brings us right into the production of Nappy, which was 25 years ago this year. And I, I want to know so, so much about your process making this um, and also trust building, which clearly was a, a part of this film. You work 
with 14 black women and girls in the film. Um, and, and so first of all, take me through your decision-making process because the film is no small undertaking. Um, did you, did you wake up and say, I know, like, I got to do this. This, this is what I need to do. Okay. Well, it started because I was a film student at Howard University and I went to film school for two reasons. One, I was taking pictures of black people and not, not everybody can see them. You know, not everybody goes to a gallery. Um, and so I wanted my work to be seen by more people. So that's why I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I was inspired by Spike Lee and the renaissance of black film back in the 90s. So that's why I went to film school. When it was time for me to do my thesis, uh, because I'm a photographer, I went to school for, I, I, my interest was cinematography. And so I had, before I went to film school, I had old school black, uh, old school slideshow where you would see two still images projected on a wall or on a screen. And what I had was this program called Sister Sister. And it was slideshows juxtaposing the photographs of how I see black women and girls to how we're photographed in the media. And I wanted to make a film I wanted to make a film version of that, but it was not feasible. My, you know, my, my advisor at the time said, well, that's not feasible. Student films should be something short, 30 minutes or less, you know, so that you can actually do it within the time that you're in school and get it done. So I took a portion of that slideshow. And the thing that spoke to me was the topic of hair. Because every black woman and girl, regardless of how you wear your hair, if you are in, if you're in America, North America, any colonized uh, country, you are told that the way your hair grows out of your head is bad. And that the way European hair grows out of their head is better. And that's what you should aspire to. And so I decided I wanted to make a film to say that when black women wear their hair natural, it is a political statement. Even though we may not consciously say, I'm trying to make a political statement. I'm going to shave my head off. You do it. It's a political statement because you're going up against the um, the status quo. You're going up against, you know, an established Eurocentric standard of beauty, which we has been shoved down our throats for the last centuries. So yeah, so that's why I made that's why I made the film, and. The women in the film, I got them. This was back in the day where we um, communicated by newspaper. <laughs> there was this paper called the City Paper in, in D.C., which is like the village voice in um, New York and it was like New Haven Advocate. And so I put an ad in the newspaper and I said, I'm looking for women and girls who want to participate in this film. And there was like some criteria. Number one, they had to wear their hair natural as a commitment, not like. Uh, I'm wearing it natural today. And then next month, I'm going to get a weave and put weave in it. So all the women had made a commitment to wearing their hair natural. And all the women didn't have um, hair added. And by natural, I don't even mean um, not permed. It means how it grows out of your head. Not even using a hot comb or a flat iron or a blow dryer. However, there's one exception. There's one woman who's braiding her little girl's hair, blow dries it before she braids it. 
Um, but yeah, that was the criteria to be in the film. And a lot of the women that were in the film and other women that were interested in it, um, students and friends of mine, it was this huge collaboration. They all helped me. They helped me find music. Um, they helped me find other women that were that wanted to be in the film. We had um, we had a what do you, I don't know what you call it. It's like where there was like ten women sat down and we had a dialogue about hair. And so I filmed that. That didn't get in the film. It was this really amazing community of Black women that wanted to get this project done. And did you find that you stayed in touch? Because there are these extremely tender moments, especially between mothers and children in the film. And uh, when you were kind enough to send a copy my way, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, these children are, are probably 27, 28, 29 um, did you find that you stayed in touch with the folks who were in the film? Some of them, yes. Um, some of them, no, because most of the, all of them were in the DC area. One woman, well, my aunt lived in Connecticut. She lived next near me, um, but everybody else was in the Washington DC area. And then I, I left and we kind of went on our way. Some women I am still in touch with. And there's one woman um, which ironically, she doesn't have a speaking part. It's the woman who's getting her hair shaved, the back, the back of her neck shaved by her boyfriend. She and I are still in touch. And she is, she's Nappy's champion. Um, she travels, it's Zakia Carr. And she travels to Central and South America. And, um, you know, so a lot of Spanish speaking countries, because that's the, she works with a lot of those with that population. And what she wants to do is she wants to have it translated into Portuguese and um, Spanish because they have the same problem there. In the Dominican Republic, they call it pelo malo, which means bad hair. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that's also the fact that I feel like people are only starting to, and maybe maybe this is not true. To me, it seems like the even the discussion around the Black diaspora and um, the violence of the the slave trade, uh, you know, centuries ago, people are are still in some in in some groups that I've talked to, just starting to have those conversations. Um, and and so when you say that, you know, I have talked to um, women who identify as Afro Boricua, for instance, and that like that is part of the hair is often part of the discussion. Yeah. Yeah, it's still very much a big, big part of the discussion. Um, and that's why Zakia wants to work with me to bring it to bring it to that community, the Spanish speaking yeah. community. Yeah. And I'm oh, I was gonna say, if it, the only regret that I have is that I wasn't able to include a Spanish speaking, a black, you know, an Afro-Latino in the film. That's uh, a reason for a part two, maybe. <laughs> yeah. That and so my well, I don't know if I'm jumping a question. But yeah, one of the things that I want to do is make a series on different topics, Black women in hair, mm. Black women in alopecia, um, Black, Black, even I might even have one where I include men and yeah. men's opinions on Black women and natural hair. Um, and then I also want to include a film where I travel to the continent and see the various hairstyles, African-inspired hairstyles. Yeah. So I that actually sort of flows into one thing that I'm really interested in asking you, which is, you know, how are you feeling two and a half decades after? Also, I love your mug. Um, oh, thank you. 
Uh, how are you feeling two and a half decades uh, after making this? Because I, I feel like a lot of the discussions that took place in the film, at least in, in front of the camera, but it sounds like also around tables that didn't specifically make it into the film are still um, very much happening. Oh, did I, did you freeze for a moment? No. Okay. Sorry. The internet here sometimes goes out, so I'm sure it's on my end, um, are still very much happening. And also, you know, in, in Connecticut, the passage of the Crown Act, which yes. stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair, that's still relatively recent state history. That was only two years ago. So we're talking about something that, like, unfortunately, um, hair discrimination is still very, very much a part of what's happening, not just in Connecticut, but across the country. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's a very loaded question. Number one, what's interesting, it's, it's uh, I'll just share this. There's a part of me that thinks, ah, oh, this is old hat. Why am I still talking about this? You know, make another film already, get on with it. There's a part of me that thinks that. But then when I think about, like you said, the Crown Act, that it, 25 years later, we still have to have a law that says you have to treat me equally no matter how I wear my hair. That shows me, that tells me that the topic in the film is still very relevant. Um, and then the other things that make me think, make me know that it's still relevant is um, the fact that they are now, it's like you can't get on Facebook without seeing this ad at least three or four times where um, there's a, a class action lawsuit for women who want to sue the relaxer, the hair relaxer companies because those relaxers, those chemicals and their relaxers are so harsh that they've been affecting women's reproductive reproductive organs. So I think about that. And then I also think about, and I really don't want any woman to take offense to this or, or think that, um, you know, I'm being critical, but I'm, I am being critical in that, uh, not in a way that I want to shame a woman, but critical in that looking at something, I notice that it's very, very rare to see a black woman with braids without their hair relaxed. So they straighten it first and then they braid it and then they're adding hair to it. So that also makes me think that, yeah, this is a really, really relevant topic. Um, and that wasn't, you know, the whole bit of where you have to straighten your hair, where you feel like you have to relax your hair and add before you braid it and add, you know, fake hair to it. That wasn't so much 25 years ago. You know, it, it's just, I can count the times when I see a black woman with her hair braided or locked, and it's just her own hair that grows out of its head, goes right, goes out of her head. It's it's very it's very disturbing to me. It makes me feel very sad. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit. We we talked about this before the show when we were still sort of off mic. Um, but if you can talk to me a little bit about also your own journey, mm. which you mentioned, because I think that this is part of it. Um, I was having a conversation earlier this week where someone said, oh, well, we can still be objective. And I was like, well, excuse me, but I think that's BS because if you have lived experience 
you like you bring your body as a black woman to a film that you're making about hair um in in the same way that i bring my uterus to a protest about planned parenthood right right um okay so one thing i want to say to about the comment that i made before a lot of women will say oh but i'm quote unquote choosing to um where put the extensions in or wear my hair relaxed and to that i always say well, would you really make the same quote unquote choice if you had never been in a country where they colonize us? Would you still make the same quote unquote choice if um, you know somebody didn't harass you at your job about your hair or if you didn't get if you didn't get discriminated against? You know, so this notion of choice, I think, is um, I don't know the word for it. It's it, it needs to be really looked at. All right, so my own hair journey. Um, I remember when I was younger, just picture of me in the film and my mom was curling my hair with a, with a hot comb curling iron. And I was about three years old, three or four years old. So even at that young age, that was instilled in me. Um, things I remember is I remember growing, uh, growing up and staying with an aunt. And if I stay with her over the weekend and we went to church, I always had, she always had to straighten my hair. So like having straightened hair is associated with um, being quote unquote professional, uh, going somewhere fancy. I have a family member that anytime she goes on a date or if she goes to her job interview, she straightens her hair. So in, um, in the summer, I used to be able to wear an Afro and Afro puffs, but the winter came, I was, my hair was straightened. And um, yeah, I was one of those black girls that had a hard time learning how to swim because the, those they know they never make bathing caps that can keep your hair absolutely dry. So around age 19 is when I shaved my head off. And the only time that, and I've always worn it natural since then. Um, and I grew up with an aunt who was in my film, my aunt Lily. So funny. Uh, she was, she was a they used to call her militant. She wasn't actually militant. It was just like, she just believed in human rights for black people. And she wore her hair natural. She was the first person that I saw with her hair natural. And she was wearing it natural, like, yeah, like five or eight years before it became popular in the sixties. So she's who I grew up with. And her spirit is uh, her spirit and my dad's spirit of being, um, of just kind of like bucking the system and standing up for what's right. So, um, and that's who I take after. So I'm losing track. Okay. The, the story that I was telling you is I had, I was, I had put together this photo exhibition because I was graduating, getting a degree in photography and me and my best friend at the time had a two woman exhibition in the middle of the exhibition, in the middle of putting the photographs up, we got this call from somebody on, you know, the state PBS saying, well, there's a spot open. Would you like to be interviewed and talk about your work? And we were so excited, but I was also really, really stressed out because my hair wasn't done. So I wore a scarf and I guess, according to my mom, I looked like Aunt Jemima, but I wore it with a tie, a bandana with a tie in the back. And we had this great interview. And then when my mom saw it, when she saw me after she saw it, she said, all she could do was talk about how ugly I looked with the bandana on and why didn't I do my hair? And 
that was, I, th- I think that that was the comment that was equivalent to the woman Dara with the locks when she said she had cut all of her hair off and didn't go for the perm. And everybody on, her, on the porch, her, her aunts and mom were standing on the porch when she came home, they were waiting for her. And they said, you just lost all your beauty because you cut off your hair. I, oh, sorry. I was going to say, so, so we got it. We get, we get, it's like the double-edged sword. You know, we've internalized this, this, this thing about hating our natural hair. So we've internalized it. Our aunts, our family members have internalized, even some black men. And then we get discriminated against from the, you know, from the outside community. Um, if folks are just joining us, this is Arts Respond on WNHHLP 103.5 FM New Haven. Uh, I'm your host, Lucy Gelman, and today I am here with photographer, filmmaker, Renaissance woman, everything, Lydia Douglas, talking about both her film, Nappy, and her career in photography. Um, so, Lydia, I, I also wanted to say you're a retired educator. That's right. And so talk to me about some of the discussions that you're also having with with young people or or that you've also been having with young people because you're like your work is so much part of you. Okay. Well, I don't talk about it's it's interesting that you say that. I haven't talked about hair with my students, which is really pretty strange. I've been a teacher for many, many, many years, but I have paid attention. And that's why, you know, I was talking to you about how I just noticed now that that Black women and girls feel like they have to straighten their hair um, in order to, and, and then braid it. Um, that's a very good question. I don't talk to them about it. Or, or I, I guess the discussions also that you're having, especially with young, I mean, what we love the men too, although... I feel like uh, for women who are listening, you owe men nothing as as far as looks and, and beauty and it, everything should be uh, a woman's choice. And, and I believe uh, just an agency where that where that is concerned, but also the discussions that you've had with young women who are interested in photography and filmmaking, because I think the media has changed. But sometimes even when I'm out on assignment. I will see men sort of just like charge into a situation, um, sometimes with like big, heavy equipment. And I see uh, young women and, and I teach some young women who will like hold back or be a, a little shyer. And I'm, I'm interested what your experience has been as an educator. Oh, okay. So as a teacher, I have, like I said, I haven't had that experience, but I can talk to you from personal experience about being a cinematographer. And um, there are not many, there are not many women cinematographers. There are not many black women cinematographers. Um, And it is very, very difficult. Uh, There is a friend that told me that he spoke to a black woman cinematographer and asked her what she would say to encourage women cinematographers. And she said she wouldn't because it's so difficult. Wow. That's, you know, so, um, and I find it, I find it intimidating um, because definitely it's a, it's a a boys network. 
Um, there are, there is one young woman who actually is younger than me. She's about 15 years younger than me, Michelle Marion. And I went to film school with her and she is kicking ass and taking names. She's a cinematographer and she's also, she does a lot of independent work. So she does a lot of her own documentaries. Um, she travels a lot. And, um, so, so yeah, so it is difficult and, I, I just don't know what else to say. I would encourage any young woman to do it, but you have to have, like for me, if I'm encouraging myself as well as other women, you've got to really um, know your equipment, know your game, um, get mentors, just like surround yourself with people who you can ask a million questions all the time. And I don't have any desire to be in Hollywood. I mean, if I, if down the road, I were able to shoot a Hollywood film or a mainstream film, then I would do it. I wouldn't turn it down. But my desire is to be a cinematographer and a photographer that other independent women and particular women of color want to use because they feel comfortable with a woman who's competent. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I have to say on that. Yeah, it it absolutely does. It absolutely does. So I I also want to ask about um I don't know if afterlives is is the right word, but in the one thing that you shared with me before we were on the air is that um for its 25th anniversary, which is a quarter of a century, that's a big deal, right? Yeah. Um there are some plans in progress and for screenings of Nappy um, in the state and possibly beyond the state. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about those. So folks listening um, who say, wow, I really need to see this film, maybe have a chance to do so. Okay. Well, I will first tell you about the next screening coming up and then I'll tell you about the plans for it. So the next screening is coming up on Sunday, March 19th at 2 p.m. Um, at the Derby, it's a envi Kellogg Environmental Center in Derby, Connecticut. Um, and that's 500 Hawthorne Avenue. And you have to register for that. I mean, you can come walk in, but it's a fundraiser. So we're asking that you register and buy a ticket through Evite. Um, I guess I can get, can I give you that link or can I give people the link? And they Oh, yeah. We're happy to to share. Um, so shout okay. out, you know, Harry Droz, who is our wonderful station manager, and he can definitely share okay. that info. And right now, what I'll do also right now is I'll give you my email address. So if you want, if people can, people can just send me an email and I'll send them a link so that they can register. The email is pzhead2. So P-Z-H-E-A-D and the number two at gmail.com. Um, so that's coming up a week from Sunday. Yeah. And so the plan for it is I'm, I'm raising funds to have, I'm raising funds to um, have an HBCU tour, historically black college and university tour of the film. So I want to take it nationally. And, um, and, and as I show it at the historically black colleges and universities, I also intend to show it in different communities, bless you in different local communities. Um, so for instance, you know, we have the Q House in New Haven and in black libraries and, and different things like that when I, when I take it around. Um, so, yeah. And 
I, I know you said you would also maybe talk to the Dev Corporation, and I will say Dev, to its credit, has been uh, behind a lot of the advocacy for Crown Act legislation. So the Crown Act does not only exist in Connecticut, it's now, uh, I know I know this somewhere, it, it, at the time it was passed in Connecticut, I think we were like the 11th state, and now it's much closer to like 20, United, which is really great, especially at a moment yeah. when it, it sometimes it feels like we we step forward a little bit and then the whole country steps back um, right, right and so also you know how does this film feel at at this moment that um so I was young when nappy was first made and I did not know about it until we had the good fortune of meeting in in January but in some ways, I feel like um, we've become more and more and more siloed and nuanced discussion is really, really difficult as this country has become very polarized and, and very partisan. And I'm wondering if the film feels tonally different to you against this backdrop where uh, Republicans are using terms like critical race theory to just talk about basic representation and basic positive representation of Black people, of Latino people, of Indigenous people, um, in in books, in the media, in films. Oh. I don't know the question. That was a, sorry. That was how you know. Does it does it feel totally different? Does it? And how are you feeling with with this work? And I also want to say with your photography, which is this extremely um, tender, emotive thoughtful body of work that is still evolving. Oh, okay. I, I understand. So what I want to say is that I feel very isolated until I get my work out there and get response from it. You know, um, and I'm I'm often surprised. I'm not, and then I am. I'm often surprised at this response that I get from the work. So I have to say, um, Sometimes I feel like it's not important and it's really, really very, very critical for me to keep talking about it, keep having conversations about it so I can keep doing the work because there's, there's like, I love photography so much and I love looking at my pictures so much. It feels like I'm being selfish. So I need the feedback from people to say, oh, we need more. We need more work and put your work out there. Um, so yeah, I just kind of, I, what's the what's the thing I'm thinking of? I underestimate the power of my work because a lot of times I'm working alone and I don't get feedback. So that's that's how I feel about my work. When it first came out, like I would say like the first 10 or 15 years, I was very, very excited about it. And um, so, yeah, so now I just have to keep that excitement up by constantly showing the work, making new work, um, showing it in different places and just being out there in the public. And also, can you tell me a little bit about this choice to buy? So I've, I have seen you with your camera around your neck. Um, and you said that five years ago, you decided to purchase a DSLR. Um, tell me about the transition, because in some ways, digital photography is great. There's like this instant gratification, but film photography is all like there's so much labor and beauty in that. Yeah. And and so I'm wondering about that transition. Yeah, I don't like digital photography. <laughs> I don't like digital photography. The thing that happened 
is that it just became more and more difficult to shoot film. And um, I don't shoot as much now that I have a digital camera. Mostly I take pictures with my phone. So I have a lot more pictures on my phone than on my digital camera. Um, so it's like just like three, how can I say it? Three different types of photography for me. So I can have really very, very nice snapshot photography and some nice um, self-portraits I've made with my phone, camera phone. And um, and then and that and that I like the, the phone, the camera phone, because it's so little. You know, and it's so easy. I always have it with me. Now, the digital camera is like real photography, except there's no film. So it's like real photography in that I'm putting the camera to my face. I'm focusing. I'm really waiting for the right moment. But um, because it's instant gratification and I don't have the film, then it doesn't really feel like photography. Now, I love film photography. I went and, and I want to get back into it. I went to B&H Photo to buy film. Film is now $15 and $17 a roll. Whereas even, even as short as like two years ago, it was only like $6 a roll. So now when I do um, film photography, when I get back into it, everything is going to have to be deliberate. Like I have to make an appointment to... Um, visit with a friend to photograph her. I have to decide, I have to go and think, you know, oh, where am I gonna photograph you? Am I gonna photograph her in this room? Is there a natural light? I have to make all these decisions because that one roll of film, is, is it costs double what it did before, but I'm committed to it because I love it. And I wanna build, um, I wanna build a dark room in my home, in my basement. I, I was just going to ask about that because one thing I've heard from photographers who love film is that darkroom space is increasingly more difficult to find. It is. And if there isn't something in your community that just like happens to have a dark and and I love I love all of the contemporary maker spaces that are sort of springing up. So this is not a slight to them. Um but for a lot of photographers they've I think they've had to make the transition yeah. because uh you can get like one hour of darkroom space at one community center uh, like once every two months and that, and that doesn't work for them. It doesn't work. No, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. Also inflation is so real when you were talking about the, the price of film, that's, that's staggering. Um, right. right. It makes you, I mean, like back in the day, film was expensive anyway. And we had to think about the image and we had to like compose in the camera, that sort of thing. We had to do that anyway, but now, man, now, this is no joke. I have to be very deliberate. The thing that's interesting though, is that because I've been a photographer for so long, I know what I like, I know what works. So it'll be easier for me to get to sort of like pre-think the idea and then go to the situation and um, photograph the person. One of the things that also, the other thing I was gonna say is one of the things that um, I wanna do to to um, bring some life back to my photography is to shoot with infrared film. Different type of, it gives you a different type of image. Yeah. Um, so as our time together, I know we could talk for like four hours and, and keep talking, but as our time together winds down, I'm always interested in asking artists like how in this crazy climate um, and, and when you're doing work that maybe should not feel inherently political, 
but I would argue is, how do you protect your peace? How are you finding joy? I'm finding joy by getting back with my family. It, it might sound really corny and cliche, but yeah, that's, that's one of the things like I, um, I'm really, really a shy person, believe it or not. I'm just like very, very shy. And um, sort of also somewhat of an introvert. Like I have to go in myself and be alone a lot in order to have the energy to be out and be in the public. So when the pandemic hit and we had to stay home, I, it took me like a while to get back into going out and being social. So ooh, I forgot the question. Oh, um, one of the things to them. Yeah. Like how, how you're finding joy and also, you know, how you protect yourself. Cause there's so much information out there all the time. Yeah. Okay. So how I'm finding joy is um, getting back with friends, doing things in person with friends, old, you know, getting back in touch with friends that I haven't been in touch with in a long time, um, meeting and staying in touch with family members that I haven't stayed in touch with or haven't really met. And how I'm protecting myself is I'm staying away from a lot of social media. You know, if I, if, and if I watch TV, it's usually I'm binge watching an, you know, an episode of something that I really like, as opposed to just having the TV on. I don't watch the news, anything important that happens. I always find out because somebody is going to tell me. So yeah, definitely stay away from social media and the news. I think that's true. So, um, I want folks to know how they can find you and also how they can find your photography and, and, and your film, um, because your photography is, is worth many, many close looks. And so I'm wondering, um, if you can shout out your social media or, um, I know you gave your email out earlier in the, um, in the episode. Okay. Well, so my email is, I'll go down the line, email peasyhead, P-Z-H-E-A-D-2 at gmail.com, Instagram at PZHead. There's no two after the, the PZHead in Instagram. So it's just P-Z-H-E-A-D. And for those who don't know, PZ is another derogatory term for the little curls of black people's hair. Um, so don't go around saying that. White people don't go, you can't go around calling black people nappy headed or just because I'm saying it, um, don't do that. And then I have a website that it's, it's um, I can, I can give that later. If you send me an email, I'll give you that. There's a few technical glitches on it. And then they could also see my work on um, Smug Mug. It's Lydia Douglas.smugmug.com. L-Y-D-I-A-D-O-U-G-L-A-S dot smug, S-M-U-G-M-U-G.com. Great. And, and we'll have Harry oh. Josh. Oh. Sorry, okay. and, and the photography, okay, and the photo my photography exhibition is and the um screening of Nappy. The screening of Nappy is Sunday the 19th at two o'clock. Photography exhibition is up for the whole month of March at the Kellogg Environmental Center in Derby, Connecticut, 500 Hawthorne Avenue, Derby. Lydia Douglas, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Arts Respond on WNHHLP 103.5 FM New Haven. Um, I have just had a very rich discussion with you and I, I appreciate you being here. 
Um, everyone, please go out, see Lydia's work. It is well worth your time. Thank Lydia, thank you so much. And uh, I think the sun is still out. I don't know. It was out when I came into the radio studio. So enjoy the weekend. Hopefully the sun keeps shining. Oh, yes, please. One more thing. Yeah, all the photography is for sale. Very important. Please pay artists. Yeah, we can't say that enough on our show or like in our articles. Pay artists, buy their work, especially Connecticut artists. We're very proud of that. And hire me to do your portrait. I do yes. animal portraits. I do animal portraits. Mm, yes. Yes. Um, hopefully you get a lot of emails and calls after this. Lydia, thank you so much. Thank you, Lucy. Take care. Bye-bye.